Hello and welcome to the May edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this programme... I'm John Kay, and I'll be finding out how our hosts, JW3, have had to reinvent the way we as a community get our share of culture. Chief Executive Raymond Simonson will be telling me about what happens to their existing programme of events now that the centre has temporarily closed its doors, as well as the launch of Jewish Online and JW3 TV. I'm Tony Honickberg. And I'll be speaking to Rabbi Herschel Gluck about the passing of his friend and colleague, Rabbi Avraham Pinter, who has died of the coronavirus. I'm Kate Fulton, and I'll be speaking to Zachary Weckstein. He's a producer who's just released his first feature film called The Host, which is a Hitchcock-style crime thriller with a rather stellar cast. I'm Kai Roslin, and I'll be speaking to Jennifer Jankel from the Jewish Music Institute about JMI Online. It's their series of events that can be accessed from anywhere via the Internet. Obviously, it's what they've had to do to adapt to the outbreak of coronavirus. And as well as all of that, we'll have our rabbinic thought for the month, which this month comes from Rabbi Charlie Beginsky of Liberal Judaism. But before all that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. There was a major surprise for the community when the Jewish Chronicle had to be saved after going into liquidation. It was sold to a consortium led by Sir Robbie Gibb, who was Theresa May's former director of communications. John Ware, the journalist whose panorama investigation into allegations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party aired recently, is also involved. Details of who is providing the financial backing is to date still unknown. Staff were originally told on the eve of Passover that their jobs were at risk, but the management team then tried to buy the assets of the JC and merge it with the rival Jewish News. At that stage, the new consortium launched their surprise counter-offer, a proposal which won the public support of the Jewish Chronicle's editor, Stephen Pollard. The Jewish News is still going to press as normal. Two much-loved rabbis have died from coronavirus. Politicians, including Labour MP Diane Abbott and the Mayor of London Sadiq Khan and community leaders, have paid tribute to Rabbi Avraham Pinter, one of the most influential and respected figures from within Stamford Hill's strictly orthodox community. He was 71. The Board of Deputies President, Marie van der Zyl, said he was a much-loved figure who built bridges between different groups of Jews and the wider UK society. He was always wise and often humorous. And Rabbi Stanley Michaels, the much-loved pillar of Mill Hill United Synagogue, died at the age of 73 after contracting the virus. Rabbi Michaels was the managing director of an accountancy firm who regularly led services at the shul and organised its Bummits for Breakfast Club. The death toll within British Jewry from coronavirus has passed 300 a month after the first Jewish fatalities from the disease were reported. But comparing the death rate within the community to the country as a whole isn't easy. Jewish deaths represent about 1.8% of the total in England and Wales, but just 0.5% of the population are Jews. It follows that the Jewish death rate is three to four times higher than the national average. The low-cost European airline Wizz Air has announced plans to resume some flights to Israel from Luton Airport on May 1st. Wizz Air said that due to the coronavirus, the flights will have enhanced health and safety measures. Physical interaction at the airport will be kept to a minimum. And finally, TV personality Rachel Riley has won the first round of her libel case against Laura Murray, a former senior aide to Jeremy Corbyn. A judge has ruled that a tweet by Miss Murray that called the countdown presenter dangerous and stupid was defamatory under common law. An egg was thrown at Mr Corbyn when he visited Finsbury Park Mosque. A left-wing journalist, Owen Jones, wrote, I think the advice is if you don't want eggs thrown at you, don't be a Nazi. Rachel Riley retweeted it with a thumbs up and the message good advice, which elicited the response from Miss Murray. Mr Justice Nicklin said it was a simple factual statement and would be understood as such. That's the news this month. 
Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this month's edition of The Jewish Views. You may notice a slight change in the way that we've put this programme together this month, and that is because, like so many others, we have had to adapt to the situation with COVID-19 and the lockdown that has affected all of the UK. Still, hopefully you will overlook some of the sound quality problems that you may hear throughout, and we very much hope you will enjoy it all the same. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. As we'll hear throughout the show, people up and down the country are having to readjust to a new way of living, and JW3 in London is no exception. As you'll probably be aware by now, JW3's doors are currently shut, but that doesn't mean that events aren't happening. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Chief Executive JW3 is Raymond Simonson, and he joins us now. Raymond, how can you run a community centre when there's no community coming through the doors? First of all, thank you for having me on, and it's good to hear that you're all doing well. A very good question. When we built JW3, it was to be a physical centre that brings people together, you know, from across the different divides in the community into physical space. And when I look out at the moment, most cultural venues, for example, outside of the Jewish community, have had to just close their doors completely. Some of them are putting out a lovely bit of archive content. You know, you can watch something that was on the stage at the National Theatre five years ago, and you can watch it on a Thursday night at home. That's great. We're doing something different. We're trying to be true to our mission. And we're trying to still have the impact that the community needs us to have by reaching people, by engaging their minds, by inspiring them, by entertaining them. So what we did within about 48 hours of closing is that we turned ourselves very quickly into a virtual Jewish community centre. We all had to pack up our stuff and go home. And I took some portable whiteboard paper, stuck it on a wall and started scribbling with marker pens with my senior leadership team on a Zoom call. And we very quickly worked out what we should be doing. And that was three specific things. If you want, I can just explain briefly about all three of those things. Yes, give us an idea of the direction you're going in for this temporary lockdown. So three key areas of our interim JW3 strategy. The first is, like I say, a virtual JCC. Just because the physical doors are closed doesn't mean that we can't reach people. So what's been amazing is that even before the week of PESA, so even mid-March, we were still having over 200 adults every week doing our Hebrew classes, and they just did it on Zoom, did it all online. We had another few hundred people in a range of different adult education lectures and courses and classes on history and politics in Israel. We've been doing a number of one-offs. We had uh, the great Israeli journalist Anshul Pfeffer, for example, doing a whole evening with us about Bibi Netanyahu and Israeli politics and 120 people joined us. And they could all see each other on the screen because it was Zoom. We've carried on with our family programming and our arts and culture programming and our Jewish content programming. All of that has continued. Importantly, our Gateways program, which teaches about about 65, 70 very vulnerable, at-risk teenagers, they have one-to-one lessons at JW3, teaching them and doing vocational training. Again, within two, three days, that had all moved to online. So, so much of our content continues. Unfortunately, things like our cinema, we've had to close down. We're working with UK Jewish Film and Seret to partner with them to offer films online. So virtual JCC, we've still got, you know, somewhere close to a thousand people every week coming to events, activities, courses and classes. They're doing it online. The second thing we did, we said, JW3 is known for being a cross-communal hub. It is the place that brings together different Jewish community organizations and Jewish people of every stripe, of every denomination and every background together into one place. And we partner with so many organizations. How do we do that when the building's closed? And we looked and we said, you know, there's so much great content that other organizations are offering here and there, but there's so much to access and it's firing at me from every angle. Wouldn't it be great if we could make it easier for people to find out what every Jewish, what every synagogue or every Jewish organization is doing? So we very quickly created it was one Saturday night after Shabbat went out. My marketing director, Zoe, worked through the night with me. She did some coding. I did some writing. And the next day, we launched Jewish Online. So it's just jewishonline.jw3.org.uk. And that is a free service to the entire community. Any Jewish organization can submit 
any of their online events they're doing. So you can, for example, as a member of the public, click on it and find Shachrit, the early morning prayer services with Rabbi Daniel Epstein of the United Synagogue, the Southgate and Cockfosters. And then you can go and join the reform movement for an afternoon event with one of their workers. You can go to something from the Jewish Music Institute or find a film from UK Jewish Film or join a Yom Hatzmut activity from the ZF. Whatever it is, whatever your background, you can find online activities. And the, the great thing is that also includes archive content. We created this thing called JW3TV and we've been uploading so much of our brilliant archive content that we've produced over the last five years, talks and gigs and in conversations with. So we have the virtual JCC, the cross-communal portal, Jewish Online, and then the last is social action. You know, JW3 has always given something back to the community, always worked in the interfaith and local social action, social justice realm, and we've carried on doing that. So our brilliant social action and volunteering programmer, Jacob, has set up a scheme where about 100 or so of our more elderly and vulnerable members and participants get a phone call every week to check in on them. And we've been partnering with a local volunteer organization that we love to work with called Feast. And they, we collect food, we and they together, collect food that is being donated by supermarkets and restaurants that isn't being used. We bring our volunteers together at a safe social distance in our demonstration kitchen once a week. And they've been cooking, creating and cooking meals for about 40 to 50 very vulnerable people across Canada, non-Jewish people, who are unfortunately feeling the painful effects of food poverty. And volunteers make the food and pack it, and then other volunteers drive up and pick up the food and go and deliver it. There are various other social action things we're doing, but those, those two are worth note. So those really are the three things we're doing. And as you can tell, just by how excited I am talking about it, there's so much going on. It's, it's exhausting. Are you charging people for some of these things and others are free? Yeah, it's a great question. We've tried to put out as much free content as we possibly can. All of the archive content, which was due to go on our brand new website and people could pay for it, we decided to put it all on for free. So that's the first thing. All of the brilliant archive stuff is free. Secondly, so far, all of our family programming has been free for children. Our programming for young adults has been free. Our cultural events have been free. The stuff people are still paying for are the adult education and languages the courses and classes that people were paying for last season, we've carried on because we, that means we can pay the teachers who are freelancers, who, who can't be furloughed because they don't, you know, they're not employed directly. It means they can get paid. It means the students get the same high quality event, but they don't have to pay to travel to JW3. You know, they can sit in the comfort of their own home and do that. So we've got around about 80% of what we've got going on is free and about 20% is charged. And bearing in mind at the moment, JW3's income has reduced dramatically. We normally earn around 50-55% of our income and fundraise the rest. That earned income has just you know, gone overnight. So finding a few ways to bring in a little bit of income at the moment to help the organisation we are, after all, a charity, has been really important. So how are you managing to stay afloat? Like most organisations, we were having some very challenging conversations and then the government announced this furlough scheme, employee retention scheme. So we had around about 72, 73 employees directly employed by JW3. And we now have 27 that are working. So it's a real skeleton staff working, running the entire charity. The rest of the staff mostly have been furloughed, which means they can at least get this money from the government to help them. About half a dozen of our staff who are the chefs in our restaurant, Zest, straight away they were, we seconded them over to Jewish Care at the very beginning to help them in their residential care homes where they are doing such a brilliant job, Jewish care at the moment. I mean, really, I want to applaud them. And it was great that we could make a contribution by giving them chefs that could help cook food when they had staff going off ill. So the first thing we've done is we've reduced our costs. We've reduced our costs of certain contracts that we have. We had five vacancies of people that were about to be employed that we had to not employ at this stage. Oh, the other thing we are doing is, you know, we have, like every charity, a very well-managed and robust reserves policy. Now, that's going to help us for, a, for the short term. But what we're doing at the moment is looking at more ways that we can save money and ways that we can bring in some income. So you'll watch this space and you'll find out that we'll you know, hopefully launch some new initiatives over coming months. At the moment, we've held back on the major fundraising simply because, like most of the Jewish charities, we all agree to 
step back for, for the initial period and allow the care homes and the social care charities the space to raise the urgent emergency appeal funds. But, you know, we're going to have to go out and fundraise like everyone else. It's thought that the government's lockdown will be eased gently and gradually uh, things will eventually become back to normal, but that could be for some time, and it's presumably mass gatherings, if you like, whether they are lectures or big restaurants or football matches, concerts, are probably the last things to to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. Are you planning what may happen ahead and perhaps in the short term, perhaps having something where you can still have social distancing and let people in, but obviously, you know, much more restricted than it was. Yeah, it's a really critical point. I, I've spent more time talking about this issue in the last few working days than you can imagine. And it is going to dominate our thinking and our planning over the next weeks. Wherein we have a number of regular board meetings with our trustees and our committees and our senior team are looking at this. The truth is, I, you know, I, I've been sent and I've read so many different articles like everyone else, and every expert has an opinion. And every opinion is just that, it's an opinion. The, the real truth is nobody knows. There are, if I, can, if I can quote Donald Rumsfeld, or misquote Donald Rumsfeld, there are the knowns, there are the known unknowns, and there are the unknown unknowns. And we are really in that territory now of a lot of known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And by that I mean, your guess is as good as mine about A, when we can reopen, B, who we are allowed in the building, you know, which demographics, which age groups, C, what type of activities we will be allowed or not allowed to do, and D, how many people at any one time we can have in the building. So what we're doing, like any sensible organisations, we're thinking strategically, we are doing scenario planning. And honestly, as someone who has done a lot of scenario planning for organisations over the years, I've never known so many you know, almost limitless possibilities and scenarios that we're trying to think through at the moment. But you know, our best assumptions at the moment are we won't go from being closed to being 100% open and back to normal. It will be some form of staggered, rephased opening. And what we will look to do is when we get to the point where we can reopen, those people that we cannot reopen to yet, we will look to continue our online services, courses and classes and events to them. And gradually, as more and more demographics, more and more age groups are allowed back in the building and more and more activities are allowed to run, we will start moving them from online to offline, from, from at the comfort of your own room to the comfort of JW3. Raymond, just before you go, so we can still get our fix of culture, if you like, whether it be on JW3 TV or Jewish Online, Perhaps you can tell us how we can actually find these. The best place to go, we've, we've actually just launched a, 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 our brand new website. It's still the same address, jw3.org.uk. If you go to that website and click on the menu, you'll see the options for Jewish Online. You'll see JW3 TV. You'll also see What's On, which is what we normally have. And if you go into What's On, there are events and courses and classes you can currently book. And honestly, I cannot recommend our Hebrew language classes highly enough. If you've got time on your hands and you want to learn something new, then I can really recommend uh, learning Hebrew with JW3. We have got what are genuinely believed to be the best Hebrew language teachers in the country, and they've moved very quickly to teaching online. So you'll get the same high-quality course with a very small class, and you'll be able to learn Hebrew in no time. So if you just go to jw3.org.uk, and you can book online now. Brilliant. Raymond Simonson, Chief Executive of JW3, thanks very much indeed for joining us on Jewish Views. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with JW3. Sadly, it's becoming all too familiar to hear that members of the community have lost their lives due to the outbreak of the coronavirus. Amongst those who we've lost is Rabbi Avraham Pinter, who died last month. He was considered one of the more influential rabbis for the Stanford Hill community and amongst his many achievements was the first to serve as a member of a town council. Let's find out more about his extraordinary life and the legacy he leaves behind from his friend and colleague, Rabbi Herschel Gluck, who joins me now. Rabbi Gluck, thank you for coming on the programme. First, Thank you for having me. Can you tell me how you first met Rabbi Pinter? Our families were very good friends. 
both Rabbi Pinter's father and my father, bless memory, were from Vienna, where they knew each other, where they interacted with one another. And Rabbi Pinter's mother came from, from the Magulius family, daughter of the Premishlana Rebbe, who was also a very close friend of the family. So therefore we grew up in the same milieu and we just knew each other. Were your friends as children in that case? He's he's quite a bit older than me. So so therefore we weren't friends but we certainly knew each other. I mentioned just before about his council work. That really was only a fraction of what he achieved. Can you tell me a bit more about everything else that he did? Of course, the mo- his most important activity were the Yusoda Torah schools, which is quite an empire. Well over a thousand children with a teacher seminary, with a very large staff. So that was his main work. But he was very active communally, especially with the Union of Orthodox Congregations. He was the chair of the External Affairs Committee, and he was very, very interested and active in protecting the Jewish community, particularly the the community in Stanford Hill, but not just the community in Stanford Hill. He had a very Claudius role, a Jewish people concern for Jews, whoever they are and wherever they are. And and whatever part of the community they came from, I understand he didn't he didn't distinguish. Jews, the, 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 his criterion was if they are Jewish, he feels a deep responsibility. But his caring for Jews didn't exclude caring for people who weren't Jewish, which he also showed a very deep concern for. Right, because there were, I mean, I was reading earlier on, so many people in the wider community paid tribute to him. You talk about other people in the community, of course, the chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, paid tribute to him uh, as being a wonderful man, as did the president of the United Synagogue, Michael Goldstein. But there were loads and loads and loads, including non-Jewish people from the community, like, uh, like the London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, Yes, you know, was... and also a lot of individuals from all from all parts of the community, and he he was a lovely person, a friendly person, a warm person, uh, whilst having very very strong ideals and very strong principles, he recognized the humanity of others and reached out and helped others uh, strengthen and deepen their Jewish connection. We mentioned before about the Yesodi HaTorah girls' school, the senior girls' school. Did Rabbi Pinter start that school, or was that there before he started? His father started His father, right. Uh, Actually, during the Second World War, a very difficult period, but his father was a great pioneer and the great builder of Jewish institutions. My father remembered him in Vienna that he was already then as a very, as a teenager, he was already a leader then and took care of the younger teenage children. And this was replicated when he came here, he must have been in his 20s, that he started the Yusoda Torah School, which which was very successful right from the beginning, and continues to be successful. And also, he was director, as we said before, of the Union of Orthodox Hebrew Congregations. Can you tell me a bit more about his job there? He was responsible for external affairs. That means dealing with politicians, dealing with civil servants, uh, dealing with other organizations in the Jewish community regarding the interests and the concerns of the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations. We mentioned before about his council work 
of course, mm-hmm. but that really was only a fraction of what he achieved. But a very important element, Thank because you. he he established and created a new mode of relationship between the council and the local Jewish community. He 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 brought it to a new height, and he normalized the relationship that the council felt that the Jewish community was an integral part of their responsibility and therefore acted in accordance to that. And that was to a great degree thanks to his warm diplomacy. Which obviously helped to combat any rise, I hate to use the word really, we talk about it a lot, anti-Semitism, but it did help to combat any any fighting, any any disagreements or anything going on, certainly within the Stanford Hill area, I believe. Yes. What do you think his legacy will be? His legacy will be that he deepened the independence and the identity of the Orthodox community as being able to stand on its own feet and being able to engage with wider society in a respectful and in a dignified manner. And finally, how will you personally remember him and how do you think he would want to be remembered? As a warm, friendly, deeply serious but at the same time, a very um, a man with a great sense of humor, with great warmth, with great charm, a person who really put himself on one side and devoted himself for the good and the benefit of our community and of society at large. And I can I can hear in in your voice how much you really did love Rabbi Pinter. I can just hear in you, the, the emotions you. coming out in your voice. Rabbi Herschel Gluck, thank you very much for telling us about... Thank you very much. ...about the life and legacy of, of Rabbi Avron Pinter. And what a better way to pay tribute to a truly great rabbinic leader than to hear from the man himself when he appeared on this very programme back in 2016. I'm confident that the real love and a real reason of faith will overcome all these obstacles because faith actually leads me to love and I I cannot stand for a moment how violence has any place in in religion or in faith it's it's a it's a total contradiction Rabbi Avram Pinter has heard on the Jewish views when he was reacting to the terrorist attack that happened in France in August 2016. You're listening to the Jewish views in association with JW3. Now, the cinemas may be shut thanks to the virus, but that doesn't mean that new films aren't continuing to come out. Our next guest has just released his first feature film through his company, Pearl Picture Productions. Zachary Wexstein is a producer and joins me now to chat about The Host. It certainly received some high praise from the critics, so let's find out a bit more about it and about the producer for ourselves. Hello, Zachary. Hi. I think I detected an American accent in that high, albeit sure. Where are you from? San Diego. Originally. You're brought you're brought up there. Yes, but kind of all over. I, I grew up and was brought up in like five different countries. Okay, but a, your film, <laughs> which we're going to get on to, on just just so we get a bit more about you. Your film's actually set in in the Netherlands. Have, have you have you lived in Holland? I do. I live in Holland. Uh, I've lived here since I was sixteen. But then I've kind of also gone in and out of the country and lived back in London and Spain during that time period as well. And built a production company over here and in Holland, and we also filmed the host in Holland, but also in London. What took you there in the first place? Have you have you done other productions there? No, so I when I moved here when I was 16, it was because my mom, she took a job at Cisco, and their head European branch is over in Amsterdam. So she took that job, and I kind of moved with her, finished up high school over, over here in Holland, and then did my 
international bachelor's degree in international business over here and then went to London to do my master's in the London Film School. And then from that That's kind right. of, yeah, <laughs> a lot of moving around. A lot, a lot of, of moving around. And what sort of um, work have you done so far uh, to date um, or before so this? So far, before this, actually it was, I graduated London Film School, got my diploma in 2016. Wow. So you've yeah. actually started, yeah. you've actually got done your first feature film so soon out of film school. What sort of drew you to this, to, to the film, the genre, and tell us a bit about how it came about. Well, in the beginning, I just wanted to, build the stairs as any other you know budding filmmaker and coming from california i went over back to california to you know find a job and work over there but what they do say that that kind of old saying when you go back home things look different you know so i saw that my kind of european growing up really had a toll on me and so came back to europe and started working and trying to find jobs over here as well. And then ended up meeting a filmmaker who had an idea of a, of a script, but it wasn't fully put together. And then he just thought it would be really cool if it got produced and wanted me to produce it. And then that's when I built Pearl Pictures Productions in, in 2017. And then in late 2017, raised the finance myself. And then we got... We got going in 2018. Gosh, that's extraordinary story. I mean, it's amazing. I've, I have seen the film. I mean, the cast and the acting, it's, I don't want to say it's like a proper film, because obviously it is, but for a first <laughs> film, it's, it's amazing. How did you get yeah, all I these, think, uh, you know, Derek Jacobi and people like that to, to sort of buy in? Well, I think, first, it's a, it's a low-budget film. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, this is a low-budget film, and they talk about, you know, $2.5 million or or five million or things like this. And I think that's just because of Hollywood, their kind of low budget Hollywood films are 25 million. So this though is way, is less than a million. So it really had to do with, I think, you know, Derek and these other actors, Togo Ogawa and Tom Wu and other people who came on the film, I think it was more to do with the philosophy of the actual film production of mm-hmm. how we were going to film this as well as the story. Even, you know, Derek Jacoby and, and other actors, each one, they said when they were reading the script, they did not know that the things that were going to happen, happened. You know, they were a bit shocked. Mm. How fabulous. For such experienced actors, it's still a surprise. I mean, I have to say, I'm not going to give away, obviously, any surprises, but I have to say, I sort of did have to gulp once or twice. But it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is, very, it is a very good story. But what I'm going to leave you to tell people a little bit about the storyline and, um, and where and how it takes you. Well, I think that it's, it's basically this tale of this young man and, and the crossroads that he faces, as well as not just him, but all the different characters that he, you know, that he meets in his path and their crossroads and the kind of decisions that we make in life. You know, if the right decision, the wrong decision, and each decision, no matter what, has consequences and has pros and cons, and we get to kind of go through that journey with him and mm-hmm. his brother, and these characters in the film. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. And the, and the, journey, the, the roads that you meet, the crossroads, actually you can't go, always go back. As the, as the poem says, you know, you, you, you reach, reach a crossroads and you, you choose, your, choose your path. Exactly. Yeah. So Robert, so one of the you know, main characters, yeah, we get to see. For me, it was always, uh, my mom always used to say, don't go down the wrong or the dark alley, you know, the dark side of the street, mm. always stay on the mm. light side of the street. Well, you know, we get to find out all the different roads that Robert and the other characters take in this film. Was it, was it a famous house, the one that it was filmed in? Is, is it particularly famous or, or particularly big? Or did you have to sort of use other, other rooms, other hotels or something? So it, looks, it looks very oh, no, splendid. It is very splendid. It actually is one of the most famous interior designed homes in the Netherlands, but it's also one of the most famous homes in Holland and definitely in Amsterdam. It's all one house, so the pool and everything that you see in that house is all done there. And for me, I think that filming on location is really important. It's really amazing when you have such great architecture and and historical buildings out there in the world. You don't always need to use green screen or use separate locations to find a way. I think there are perfect locations out there 
And this was definitely one of them, that house. And the woman who owns it is a painter and a very wonderful woman. And she allowed us uh, and all the, the crew and actors to live in her house for a while. When we were well, as long as she doesn't have the, a real torture room downstairs, hopefully you have to fit that one out. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> How has your Judaism being Jewish played a part in, in any of your work or your life? If at all, I think I think it, I think definitely. You know, my great grandparents—they were Jewish immigrants that came right before the war and during that time. And yeah, they came from the Eastern Bloc and they came with nothing, you know, and worked worked their way up to everything. And the heart mm-hmm. and the soul and the passion that they, you know, had, they passed down to generation to generation. And with hearing those stories, it kind of inspired me be the the man and the producer and the the ethical mm. you know worker that I am today and also even my great grandmother Pearl I named my production company after her because so if I could lovely. you know bring anything yeah I, for me I, I you know I just want to bring every strength possible you know to anything that I'm able to produce or be a part of and you know when she was apparently one of the most strongest women there you know. So for oh, me, I'm sure she'd have been very proud. It's, uh, it's it's wonderful. How wonderful that you've brought the past into the present by calling it after her. That's 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 very, really nice. Well, yeah. So, uh, given well, that really, we're all that sitting in our homes at the moment and the cinemas are not open, people want to watch the film. How should they go about doing that? Well, then it's very easy because either you, if you have Amazon Prime or if you have Apple TV or iTunes or Google Play, you can see the film. It's on every mainstream pay-per-view platform at the moment. And then later on, it would also be on other platforms as well. But this is its first outing. Right. Oh, wonderful. So you can sit in the comfort of your home and, and watch that through a sort of pay-per-view type channel, whatever that, whatever that is. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. We shall do that. So then looking, looking forwards, hopefully when we're all out of lockdown, I suppose you'll be allowed to do some filming at some point, one hopes. What's next? What are you What are you thinking and planning? Well, at the moment, the film The Host was released in January seventeenth in uh, North America, and just released April seventeenth in the UK, and it's going off to the Benelux and other countries all around the world. So, handling you know the PR and the press and marketing on that at the moment, and as, as well as you know reading lots of different scripts and things like this that are coming to the to the table and seeing what the future will bring for the the next production for Pearl Pictures Productions, especially because right now, you know, the world is changing and there's all different kind of new interests. Yeah. But uh, stories, stories that should be told, you know, in the next coming years to try and inspire the uninspired and to help the world inspire themselves to maybe be better or more open or <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Absolutely. Gosh, is there any filming going on, actually? I mean, I'm assuming not, but I don't know if there is any uh, filming going on in the States or no. where you are, or is everything, you're just focusing on the marketing, but I, I know, but in general, is there yeah. filming going on? You know, generally, what I hear, everything's shut down. So, at least out in LA and Hollywood, I, I've heard that mm. they've all, you know, stopped all their productions and put them on hold. And everyone that I know that's been working on films, they've stopped as well. But, Gosh. you know, I think right now, in Holland at least, things are picking up a little bit and they're slowly opening their doors and stuff. And hopefully soon the rest of the world can can do this as well. And this whole coronavirus dies down <laughs> and we can, we can come out and stay healthy and be healthy and continue with our you know, day-to-day work and day-to-day lives. Well, the film is called The Host. And it's available online now, and we've been hearing about it from the producer of the film, Zachary Wexstein. Zachary, thank you so much for talking to us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. And as you can probably tell, here at The Jewish Views, we've had to adapt the way we record our shows so that we can carry on bringing it to you each month. Well, we're not the only ones in the community that's had to make some dramatic changes. The Jewish Music Institute has launched an entire schedule of events and classes 
for us to now enjoy from the comfort of our own homes. Naturally, we are more used to going to see some of the wonderful concerts in person. So this will be quite different, to say the least. Let's find out more. But how it will work by speaking to the JMI's Chair of Trustees, Jennifer Jankel, who joins me now. Jennifer, remind us what JMI usually does for those who might not know and possibly a bit of background. Well, the JMI is 36 years old. It was created by Geraldine Arbach at that time. It had a different name. And we curate, we educate, we work with musical programs of many different kinds. Through all the years, our programs have grown. And for example, the pillar of our work is the Jolos Lectureship, which was set up in 1990-1991, when my late father, Joe Loss, passed away to honour his work. So that was set up, and the lectureship is at SOAS. It is flourishing, and we have Dr. Ilana Webster-Cogan, who is our third lecturer. Very exciting. We work extremely well, and she teaches across the whole musical department. She's a senior lecturer there. We have a summer school, which runs for a week, sadly cancelled this year, but that runs in August, and we teach Yiddish song, run by Shira Lepofsky from Holland, Helen Beer, who teaches Yiddish language, and of course, Claire's Fest, run by Susie Evans. That usually welcomes around 200 people, which is extraordinary for that particular those subjects in this country. We then have Klesmer in the Park, which I think most Jewish people and non-Jewish people know about now. We are into our 11th year. And again, very sadly, it's had to be cancelled this year. But watch this space because hopefully we're going to be doing something online as part of our programs with Max Reinhardt. So we have a schools program. We go out to primary schools and we either teach instruments like accordion accompanied by very professional musicians and taught by professionals or Yiddish song. We had one on Canvey Island, which is a really exciting experiment with the non-Jewish population ending up in a concert for 350 people. And of course, we have the JMI Youth Big Band. Now that was dreamed up and proposed by Sam Eastman, who is an outstanding conductor and composer, works with John Zorn from the States. And he walked into our office one day, and voila, three years on, we have a youth big band of children, young people between 11 and 19. We are growing. We have uh, summer workshops. We give concerts and the very latest concert was a sellout at the Pizza Express Jazz Basement in Soho. And it was a complete sellout. And we shared the program with Nigel, the National Youth Orchestra Jazz Band, which is entirely different in its style. Very complimentary. So lots and lots of, I'm sure I've forgotten things, but that gives you an idea about our, it's education at all levels using Jewish music. And none of that's going to change when you're on JMI online then? Obviously, we can't hold Klesma in the Park. It's physical, it's crowds. We can't hold our August workshops. But what we are doing is we're starting a program. We held a conference, Yalla, very first Judeo-Arabic conference ever held in this country, at SOAS, we were very lucky that on the 9th and 10th of February, and it actually took place before the COVID-19 lockdown. Now, we are taking out of that program and making new recordings with some of the incredible lecturers from all over the world. It was the inspiration of two of our, uh, well, of one of our trustees, Dr. Vanessa Paloma Elbaz and Ilana Webster-Kogan, and we showed the concert, which had quite substantial viewing into several thousand. That took place 
it took about an hour and a half and it's online if you go to the JMI website which is jmi.org.uk and then we're very excited because we're planning and I can't tell you detail yet it's really exciting a program of working with Sam for the JMI Big Band Online using the basis of a wonderful group of tunes that they recorded on CDs, all these amazing young people. That's quite a lot to go. Well, what you've told me so far sounds very interesting. Uh, how do you, do you think the coronavirus is going to change the way that we come together for consistent future when all of this business of lockdown is finally over? Well, it's, it's everybody's question, isn't it, Clive? I think that in terms of music and concerts, it's impossible to replicate anything by using Zoom, for example. It's very difficult. I've seen quite a lot online. There are some very professional presentations, but nothing will replace going to concerts in a million years. People come together. It's the atmosphere. It's the sound. A big challenge having perfect sound and people working together. So I think that will never change. And in fact, it might even encourage people to go to more concerts than they've been to before, because maybe they've picked up something online and watched it and thought, wow, I'd like to go and see that performed. I think that could possibly happen. I think in a, from a business sense, working as teams like we do with Gil and Raphael and Joe, which is our little team, and Noah, who's Clevesman in the park. I think we will do more creative thinking and work by Zoom rather than sitting in our cars like I'm used to doing, going to North London every time that I need to go and see somebody. So I think we'll shorten our car time, but I don't think it'll, it'll replace live performances. However, it will add performances to, I believe, I, and maybe it's too early to say, but I think JMI will, if these are successful, these um, online programs, I think that we will continue with them once the virus is over. Oh, that would be great. That would be absolutely great. Finally, you've told us the how to do it so far, but where do people go for more information? Oh, to our website. If they go to JMI org.uk they could actually click on to the concert that we showed last week and as we create each program they will go up onto our website and also we send out an e-newsletter if they sign up to get more information about us it doesn't cost a penny they can just go to our website and sign up or alternatively they can always email me at Jennifer at jankel, J-A-N-K-E-L dot com. And I would be happy to help them make sure that they receive our programs. But if they go online, they can just sign up for our e-newsletters, which go out every month plus. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Well, Maya, I wish you the very best of luck with all of it. And thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure, Clive, because it's really great to be able to create during such a difficult time when so many of us are, you know, very affected or our families are very affected by everybody around. So I would like to wish everybody a safe, safe time ahead of them, including you. you. Jennifer Jankel, Chair of Trustees at the Jewish Music Institute. Thank you so much for speaking to us and giving us so many interesting things to know on the Jewish Views. And now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this month it comes from Rabbi Charlie Beginsky of Liberal Judaism. I once heard a teacher of mine refer to the Jewish traditions that surround death and mourning as a reality-based approach. At a Jewish funeral, there is no effort to try and cover up the finality of death. We do not embalm or preserve. We bury in a plain wooden box. The traditional idea has been that nature will take its course and restore the body back to the earth from which it was taken. The mourners will pour in earth to the grave with a thud of reality coursing through their veins that their loved one has really gone. When a loved one dies, we tear at our garments, 
ripped clothes, ripped hearts. We cover our mirrors, we stop washing and shaving, stop caring about how we look. No amount of looking better can make us feel better. Nothing can replace a life lost. Loss. It makes us shrink into ourselves, close off and shut down. And yet today, death and mourning and every ritual we have ever held onto in order to guide us through these moments has changed. During the last weeks, we as an extended Jewish family have seen so many deaths. There are very few within our community who have not been touched by the death of someone we knew and loved. I also know that there are many, many of us who have not been able to be present at their funerals, who have attended shivers by Zoom, who have not been able to reach out and hold someone shaken by loss and offer the comfort we would have offered without a thought that of simply our own presence and warmth. It can seem trite in these circumstances to talk of new rituals, but there are many people who have told me how touched they were by the way their rabbi was able to lead a meaningful ceremony without mourners, how their Zoom shiver allowed family across waters to connect, and how they are thinking of new ways to mark stone settings and yard sites. The world will have changed forever when our physical isolation comes to an end. For many of us, we will be taking steps along a new road without a loved one by our side. We will remember them, we will work to make their memories a blessing through remembering not only everything about them that we were grateful for and that shaped us, but in our never forgetting to be thankful for the lives and freedoms that we have. As Thornton Wilder, the author of the play Our Town, advised us, all that we know about those we have loved and lost is that they would wish us to remember them with more intensified realisation of their reality. What is essential does not die but clarifies. The highest tribute to the dead is not grief, but gratitude. Gratitude for their lives, but also gratitude for our own lives, for what we have. Thank you to Rabbi Charlie Beginski of Liberal Judaism for our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's all for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Raymond Simonson, Chief Executive of JW3, telling us about just some of the ways in which they are making sure that we get our fix of culture whilst JW3 has to close its doors temporarily. Don't forget Jewish Online and also JW3 TV. Thank you also goes to Zachary Wexstein telling us about his new film, The Host. We also have to say thank you to Rabbi Herschel Gluck telling us about his friend and colleague, the late Rabbi Avram Pinter. And also, we have to say thank you to Jennifer Jankel from the Jewish Music Institute, telling us about how JMI Online has had to also make some rather rapid changes during this time of COVID-19. Thank you also to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and of course, to you at home for listening. Don't forget, you can listen to this or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. And let it be known that this episode of The Jewish Views is dedicated to the memory of Rabbi Avram Pinter. From me, Phil Dave, from John Kay, Tony Honickberg, Kate Fulton and Clive Roslin, we hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. And please do keep well, keep safe. Goodbye.